Nicholas Borneos of Capital Inc. I would like to welcome you to the crude tankers uh, sector uh, panel discussion. Crude tankers, the tanker sector is, uh, as everybody hopes, uh, the sector uh, about to recover. So uh, we look forward to the great insight of uh, industry leaders who are on this panel. I would like to thank each one of them for joining. And uh, I will let uh, Ben Nolan, uh, the head of maritime research at Stifel, uh, who is a moderator to introduce our panelists. Actually, everybody knows the panelists, but uh, still I will let uh, Ben take over. And uh, again, thank you to all of you for joining us today. Great to have you with us. Thank you, Nicholas. So I'm, I'm not going to be labor the, uh, the introductions. I'm sure that, uh, as Nicholas said, everybody probably knows the both the people and the companies that these people represent. Uh, certainly, if you're dialed into the Zoom call, I'm, I'm sure that's the case. But nonetheless, we have an order of my Zoom screen here, Jeffrey Bohr from International Seaways, uh, Harry from, uh, from Chacos, Lars from Frontline, Hugo from Euronav, and Bob Burke from um, Ridgebury. So uh, again, representing large, uh, frankly, uh, Add all of this together, and it's it's uh, certainly would would be uh, I don't know top ten maybe maybe twenty percent of the global crew tanker fleet. So uh, very powerful group of uh, companies represented here, um, primarily crude, but there's a few products, and I know that there's a separate product panel, but maybe to the extent that there's some overlap, we'll have some questions there. Um, but with that said, I want to start with a few easy questions and uh, represent, uh, appreciating that, that four of the five of you uh, represent uh, public companies. Just in, in full disclosure, I'm not asking for guidance or anything that your compliance department would have a problem with. But um, the, the, question, the first question is just a simple yes or no, in your opinion, uh, type question that maybe each of you could answer. Uh, do you think that we're going to have a, a winter rally in the crew tanker market? Yes or no? Um, Harry, I mean, you want to start with you? Can I say absolutely? Yeah, that would be a yes. So, we'll, <laughs> okay. Bob, you're on mute. Uh, what he said. Um, yeah, I think you can start to feel it coming now. You know, hopefully, uh, well, hope's not a strategy. I, I think that the dynamics uh, point to uh, another few weeks and we'll be where we hope to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it starts with recovery, two R words. It starts with recovery and then it'll be a rally. So just wait for yep. it. Okay. Lars? Yeah, no, I, I was uh, quoted uh, in Tradewinds uh, the other day and, uh, you know, sentiment is, is a strong force and it's uh, kind of uh, ship owners' perception of the position they're in. And uh, I'm, I'm, you know, a strong believer that uh, owners, you know, with increased activity we are seeing in the spot market right now, uh, that we are getting closer to some sort of balance where we're actually able to price freight. Um, so, so, yes. I hate to be similar to the others, but nevertheless, I will be in this case. Um, and I fully agree uh, with Lars that, uh, as a matter of fact, we've uh, 
uh, not enjoy a good market for a, a long time, but it didn't represent the, the right balance between cargo and the number of ships. In fact, it was more the sentiment that was very negative because a lot of the cargoes were hidden and done in a private way, um, which brought the sentiment down. I think that today we are seeing a lot more cargoes. And when I talk to chartering desks, um, people are a lot more positive and you can already see the improvement in the rates. So mm -hmm. this winter will be a further improvement. And, uh, and we definitely hope uh, to be where Bob, I believe we're going to be I, where we want to be in a positive territory. Yeah, I knew that wasn't going to be a straightforward yes or no um, answer. But uh, I, I, the next one, maybe this will even be more straightforward. Again, we'll, we'll get the easy ones out of the way. Um, a a year from now, on June the twelfth, or sorry, <laughs> October the twelfth, uh, two thousand twenty-two. Um, what would your best guess be for a spot VLCC rate? Uh, I think everybody but Bob owns fees and. Bob, you know your way around a view pretty well. So um, a year from now, what do you think? Uh, Bob? Shall I start? Sure. Shall I, yeah, uh, go Bob, ahead. go ahead. Go ahead, Bob. Um, we, do, we do have four Vs that, uh, oh. right. We'll, and right now they're on charter. They'll be, we'll be exposed to the spot market come uh, end of December. So um, I think it'll be low 30s. 32, 33,000, that would be where we've, and we, we've all, you know, put our money somewhere where our mouth is. So we all have a, a position. Right. Maybe I can go then. Um, I, I think we'll be higher than that. Um, mm -hmm. I think that the fundamentals uh, of the market points to a direction that is uh, probably not more optimistic. I know that October, uh, is the start of the good season for us. Um, but I think the next summer will be a lot better than uh, what we had this year. And so uh, I would start with a four. Yeah, you know, Ben, I, I, I feel the same way. The, the long-term average for these, uh, you know, can debate what's an average uh, 15 years, 20 years uh, super cycle or not. But, you know, it's the high 30s to low 40s. And so I, I'm with Hugo. I, I, like, I think next year has a, has an excellent chance of being at least a mid-cycle rate, if not better. So I would gravitate towards a four in front of the number. Yeah, I, I, I can th throw in a, a little torch there because uh, you had a discussion with uh, some um, kind of a company close to us, uh, which is in the LNG space, and also uh, even uh, just as close in, in the dry bulk and, and coal exposed space. The thing is that we could potentially be drawing very, very hard on inventories here. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, inventories is always a look back. Uh, you know, it's only half the equation that is uh, kind of more or less real time reported. So we could actually find ourselves as the LNG expects that they are in inventory refill throughout the, the next summer. Um, and if, you know, if crude is, is good to follow any of these other Kind of asset classes that is uh, are having a raging bull market around us, um, you know, we, we, we could have an atypical kind of uh, year next year, but it's going to be strong, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, I, no, no, well, I, I totally agree with everyone. And Ben, uh, if I was, uh, if I was get to ask first, I would say uh, somewhere in the high 40s. Uh, but that would be the average I would expect, especially if uh, uh, we see 
the levels of uh, scrapping that we have seen recently uh, going to next year. And uh, we have no reason not to believe that uh, this will happen, especially as, you know, as scrap prices are, uh, uh, are at historical lows. And uh, 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 the VLCC fleet, uh, I think 20, 30% of that fleet is over, it's, it's kind of aging. Uh, then I expect, you know, very strong rates and pot potentially within that period that averages, uh, you know, 40, uh, we could potentially see uh, uh, a short term uh, a super spike in, uh, in VL rates in a particular routes, uh, especially, the, uh, you know, long haul or out of the AG to, uh, uh, to, uh, to uh, you know, to the Far East. Okay, so um, we have the, the four public companies all relatively bullish. Bob, I would I would call low 30s sort of not as bad as we are certainly now, but a little bit muted. Yeah. What gives you uh, what gives you a little bit more, uh, you know, pause, let's say, with respect to sort of how you, you view the world? Well, I think um, generally the market doesn't get heated up until a little bit later in the year than October, wherever we are, 12th. You know, I, I sort of have a, a mental date of Thanksgiving when things seem to pop. Um, and before then they seem to be a bit, bit lower, but, um, you know, I, I think also, you know, what, what I'm looking at is ships that are a little bit older and that's, we, we price our, our own little market where we sit, but, um, you know, I think the potential for the upside, you know, what the, we, we all see how these graphs go, you know, once they go, they, they take off. Once the, the market gets squeezed as, as we've, we've lived through on the crude side and the clean side, and also that people now are living through on the, uh, on the bulk on the container side. Sure. So I, you're, I, would, you're, I, would, I would think once the market winter gets going, it could be significantly stronger. Right. So, so for you, it's more a matter of timing than necessarily a sentiment that is very different than uh, uh, what other people are seeing. Yeah. When I look at the numbers, I'm, I'm always thinking it's just time of year, but in hindsight, it's always, you know, the fourth quarter and the first quarter that, you know, it's the end of the fourth quarter and the, or in the first quarter to the second quarter that seemed to be the highest. Okay, good. All right. Well, uh, that I, I think, sorry, Ben, if, if I can just interject there, I think it, it's going to be very interesting, very interesting to see uh, if, uh, if any spikes in the spot market, in the spot rates uh, in uh, 22 will have any lasting power. I think it's very important to monitor the one year ETC and how that gets impacted by, uh, by uh, a firmness in, uh, in spot rates. So if we see a sustained increase in the time charter rates, then uh, then we are uh, in for a rally on uh, right. towards the end of the year. Right. Okay. That that makes sense. So um, now I, let's dig in a little bit. We we sort of uh, I thought we would start out by level setting just to uh, see if there were you know any uh, dissenting opinions or or whatnot. Seems like everybody's on the same page and feels relatively optimistic as is sort of the nature of the beast for ship owners. But um, with respect to the outlook for, um, for both, you know, an improvement in the near term and, uh, and, and then a much stronger year next year and going forward. So let's start with the near term a little bit. Uh, you know, one of the things that, uh, that Lars, you mentioned uh, tangentially was the, the fact that the LNG market is as strong as it is. And certainly the LNG commodities are strong and, and really anything that can burn is uh, in high demand at the moment. Um, how, how much of uh, sort of your optimism or, or how big of a role do you think um, will or could uh, fuel oil or, or, or 
you know, oil being used for electricity um, play in the back half of the year and, and sort of how much, um, how much it, uh, of a winter rally is sort of dependent on that. Any ideas, any, any takers? Well, I, I, I think this is like twofold. It's uh, first of all, we've had, <clears throat> and I was even surprised myself when looking at these statistics. It's the uh, first half of this year, uh, we've actually hadn't, haven't really seen that much demand increase uh, in Asia uh, in particular and in uh, kind of emerging countries. Um, most of the demand increase has happened actually in, in Northwest Europe and, and US uh, or Americas, if you want to. Um, so, so Asia has actually been pausing for almost uh, the first six months of the year. Um, but uh, luckily, uh, you know, we expect, expect Asia to come out uh, and, and to, to participate in the, in the increased demand uh, in the second half of the year, and, and particularly now towards Q, Q4 or into the winter. Uh, and as you rightfully say, you know, the lowest energy carrier, or the, the cheapest energy carrier around right now is oil. Uh, you know, kind of based on, on, on efficiency into a power plant, the cheapest thing you can get is oil or diesel, which is uh, what you normally would use. The, this hasn't really been a significant part of, of uh, the energy space for 10 years. So, so the big question is how much capacity is out there? How many diesel generators are there to, 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 to participate in this? We have seen reports of, um, you know, uh, Bangladesh and Pakistan canceling LNG tenders and, and uh, potentially retendering in the diesel market. We are also seeing diesel cracks uh, kind of uh, rising a lot and the uh, refinery margins obviously rising in, in, in the same pattern. So, but, but it, this is the big uh, kind of question. So in addition to kind of the, the recovery case in Asia uh, towards uh, the end of the year, in addition to winter demand, we potentially have somewhere between half a million barrels or two million barrels. That was uh, what Citibank was uh, guesstimating uh, in, a, in some research I saw. So, so it's, uh, it's an X factor. Uh, it's, it's obviously not one, you know, we would all love everybody to make electricity out of water, but uh, in the kind of energy crisis we are right now, um, you know, this is the case. And, 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 and it could be a strong co contributing factor. In the old days, um, in Japan alone, you, you looked at 1 million barrel incremental demand during the winter months. Uh, you know, this was kind of when they used diesel for, for electricity. But, uh, but there's big numbers, potentially. Maybe I can add two cents to what Lars uh, has just mentioned, and uh, uh, obviously uh, fully agree with with all the points that you made um, about China, um, and and maybe we have a, a little bit of a different angle there. Uh, what we believe has happened is that the sort of uh, a flat uh, demand that is coming from China is is because of two things. First of all, they had piled up quite a lot of inventories. Uh, in the oil crisis of last year, and we've seen a lot of uh, uh, excess cargoes going to China. And so obviously, no one should believe or could believe uh, the Chinese statistics. So regardless of that, we know that they've played that game and we know that they've drawn on their inventories. The good news is that they've probably followed the profile of inventory drawdown that we've seen uh, in the West. And then the second thing is that we know for a fact that they are importing uh, oil coming out of Iran. And obviously that's out of the statistics that we're looking at. But we also know that that has a limit and they've probably reached the limit 
the maximum amount of oil that they can import because they can only import uh, uh, oil to the uh, teapot refineries, the very small refineries, as the other ones are uh, do belong to large uh, corporates, Chinese corporates that have assets to uh, or in the US and therefore expose uh, to uh, to the US sanctions. So I think that on both uh, case, uh, I fully agree with Lars that we should see an improvement uh, in the imports of uh, of oil, uh, particularly from China during this winter. I think. Um, go ahead, Jeff. Then I'll go. Well, I was just going to say, I just I, this just the discussion from Lars and Hugo both underscores the importance of inventories. Uh, in in my discussions with investors, I, I find that that. It's, it's not talked about quite enough. I mean, we talk a lot about oil demand, uh, but for us, it's obviously about demand for, for tankers. And sometimes that's for storage like last year, but this year is the other side of the, of the coin. Uh, and one of the frustrations is that, that the inventory numbers in, in China, of course, are, are opaque. So we, we have to kind of infer or, or make educated guesses as Hugo just did. But to me, it's it's very clear that, that OPEC is really laser focused on this and that's what's behind their very measured approach to letting production come back. But all signs point to, to the inventories being at a level where, where OPEC production is going to have to follow the increased demand seasonally, secular, cyclical recovery from the COVID uh, crisis and the uh, extra for, for fuel oil for uh, gas replacements. I think even with the price of gas, what I found is with the price of gas so high in Europe, I, you know, ironically, um, you know, the carbon credit mechanism and pricing mechanism actually acts as a damping effect for um, to allow coal or, or oil to, re, to replace gas as easily as you would think. So most of the demand will come from, from Asia or the States. Um, and what I was around uh, in Europe and New York the past couple of weeks, London actually, and um, I sat with maybe five or six different oil companies or traders, and we've all read the same thing. And even at a, over a cup of coffee, which is refreshing to do as opposed to a Zoom, um, they all come up with between six hundred and fifty and a million five. And that was a couple of weeks ago of uh, of crowding out or replacement. Mm -hmm. And the numbers they've seen have consistently gone up, you know, little by little as as time goes by. So um, if it's cold, I, I tell my kids to they have to pray for a cold winter, not good grades. <laughs> Well, yeah, I, uh, we, we might have overlapped in London. It was great to use my passport again, uh, <laughs> doing, doing my part to help the crude tanker market. But um, so I, that's helpful. And, and certainly framing in and, and some of those data points are, uh, are interesting. I want to go back. And there's a lot of different things that we can talk about. But I'll, let's go back to something that, uh, that Hugo mentioned and has sort of been especially for you guys, Hugo, and you're now one of sort of the more marquee talking points, this, uh, this um, ghost fleet, right, of, uh, of tankers that are moving oil from Iran, um, despite sanctions uh, to China. Um, you know, first of all, maybe, maybe Hugo, we could get you to frame it in, but let's talk a little bit about sort of how this unwinds when it unwinds and what uh, what impact it might have on the tanker market i mean i'm, I'm just going to take one minute because quite frankly i don't really care about the the sort of ghost fleet simply because what we are missing are the barrels that they transport so it's not about the ships it's about the cargoes um the the ships if if and when there would be a relaxation of the sanctions 
um, I believe that uh, those ships will never come back to the market. So in fact, to, today, the market is a two-chain market. You have this ghost fleet, if you want to call it, and, and it's probably a ghost fleet because it's poorly managed, very old vessels, poorly manned, not insured, very dangerous, very risky, all the rest of it. Uh, and it's uh, anywhere between 55 and 80 ships. So it's a significant amount of, uh, of ships that have been doing that for uh, maybe last 18 months. And then you have the regular fleet, the international fleet that is exposed to all the other cargoes that, that we know. And all the improvement in the, on the cargo front, so the demand for uh, transportation is coming on our side. It's obviously not coming uh, on, the, on that side because of the reason that I mentioned. If the sanction would be lifted, um, that fleet would not come back uh, for a number of reasons. It's not uh, a good fleet. I mean, it's a very old fleet. It's extremely poorly maintained. It's out of service. It's uh, mostly trading... Uh, outside um, uh, the regulatory framework that is uh, uh, very strict in our markets, uh, believe it or not. Uh, and to bring back such a type of ship in the market is would be useless. At the same time, those guys will have an opportunity to scrap. Scrap price are still very, very high. Uh, so I think that the temptation uh, to uh, bring them back into the market would simply be uh, uh, replaced by uh, the very elevated scrap price, meaning that on VLCC today, you're fetching uh, 20, 21, 22 million. So it's a very, very nice uh, number. Anybody else care to talk about Iran a little bit? Yeah, I, I, I'm, you know, obviously I can echo what uh, what Hugo is, uh, is talking about here, but I, I think uh, one uh, thing that's puzzled me over the last uh, couple of weeks is uh, we've actually seen floating storage increase in certain regions of the world. Um, there is absolutely no economic sense whatsoever in storing oil in a backwardated market unless you're doing a massive punt on flat price. And people do that to a very limited extent. And uh, it's Southeast Asia is one of the regions that's growing. Uh, and, and mind you, all barrels, you know, regardless of whether if it's fuel, crude, you know, diesel, whatever, is in backwardation. So so it, it becomes less worth uh, in a month. Um, and still you have inventory growing. So I think actually that could potentially be a good sign because I think uh, the barrels are are probably diff difficult to place. Uh, and uh, so, so basically, uh, and most likely due to origin, so it could be that we're already witnessing uh, kind of the limitations to this trade as there were maybe not uh, that uh, aggressive takers any longer for the for these molecules um, uh, that have a kind of a funny origin. I think if you, the current administration is under a lot of pressure in a lot of areas and the popularity and poll numbers have come down significantly over the past six weeks. So. I don't, my own guess, I don't think it would make any sense for them to take on something else controversial at this point in, the, in their development. Even if they lose just a few points of popularity, they're already in a, in a bad position. So from a political point of view, there's not a lot of upside. I don't know. Might take the other side of that one. I was going to say the same thing. Look to Washington, whether it's good or bad. I think if they see a win, uh, which defined by this administration coming to an agreement, coming to terms with Iran, might be considered a win from their perspective because uh, Biden supported the the, the the nuclear treaty when he was vice president. So, you know, just I think either way, it's kind of not a market fundamental. It's a it's a political fundamental. But but look to Washington over the next couple of months and, and we'll see. Yep. 
I agree it's political fundamental. And if you're at the cocktail party tonight, Jeff, we can discuss. <laughs> well, that's uh, no, no, no. We, we want uh, we want various opinions here. So feel free to lob out, you know, your your expectations as to sort of political developments or whatever. It makes for, for good television here. But um, the, it, it, it's just it, a certain percentage of people will not like it. Yeah. And if you're already on the ropes, you don't want to lose anyone, even if it's popular with uh, a, a huge percentage. You know, you, you're playing the margins. Then you're not, you're not, you're not swinging for the fences, as we say. Sure. So it's just a guess. I'm not a politician for a lot of reasons, and that's one of them. <clears throat> well, there, there is a, a question that came in um, from the lines here, or, or Zoom, or whatever. But uh, I'm going to tie it into. Well, maybe I'll start with a. a my own little question and tie in this other ones, but um, you know, we, we talk about Iran and, and, you know, we haven't, but certainly one of the big catalysts is uh, OPEC gradually increasing or maybe not gradually increasing um, their production. But um, you know, I, I think from my perspective, one of the potential drivers uh, for the crude tanker market is uh, in increased activity level in the United States, uh, as, as oil and gas prices are higher, and as a function of that, the rig counts moving up, and you know the U.S. quickly became a major player in uh, in the export of crude oil. Um, you know, as you guys are looking at it again, um, how how important are those U.S. barrels and incremental U.S. barrels to a tightening? Uh, market and with respect to your view that next year is going to be pretty good, which is sort of universally held here. Well, in, in an ideal world, all the oil should come from US and, uh, with the, and China should be the only consumer. Uh, but, yeah. uh, but uh, no, the, the US volumes are important. Um, you know, we like to think that there is between 37 and 40 million barrels of crude oil hitting the waters at any point in time in a normalized year, maybe north of 40 even. And then, you know, US export numbers of uh, two to three to three and a half, four million barrels is significant to, to the um, uh, kind of, uh, uh, to the tonnes. Uh, and, and ideally we don't want the US to import very much either because then you, you, you make like a, a perfect kind of ineffective round voyage. Yeah, and, and uh, the, the, the thing we all hear all the time, especially the last few weeks, given the shortage of, of, of gas, is that overall uh, you know, fossil fuels have been underinvested globally, but especially in the U.S., given the capital markets uh, dis, you know, distaste for public companies uh, investing too much. Um, but that's the, the negative side, or the glass half empty. Glass half full is, I heard this yesterday, I hope it's right, that about 50% of the U, U.S. oil production is uh, in the hands of private uh, companies that are, that are privately owned. And I think there's a tremendous opportunity for them to make a lot of money uh, investing in shale oil, which can ramp up production much faster. You know, look at Saudi Arabia is going up a million barrels. It's going to take them three years to do it. So if we're going to get more oil to, to meet the shortage that is that is showing up now, it's, it's, it's going to have to come from places like the U.S. And I think it's going to come from private capital. And I'm relatively optimistic that, that it'll be higher than, than most people have been projecting till now. So this leads to the question that came in, and I have my own opinion here, but it's not about my opinion. Uh, the question is, uh, 
there, I guess, is some noise that Biden might reinstate the ban on U.S. exports of oil. Um, uh, mm. What are your thoughts on on the? I don't know. Let's not call it the likelihood, but um, the the potential ramifications if that were to happen. The, let me, I just want to address one thing about oil production. Um, there is virtually no capital coming into the private equity funds who raise money for energy. It's just not there for all the reasons that we know. And, and Jeff said that the public doesn't want to hear about it. Um, but I, I also wanted to add that the U.S. is an inefficient export of oil. We don't have the deep water ports yet that we need to sustain, you know, three, four million barrels a day. And we're just doing it now. Uh, you know, we'll have one BL port shortly and the rest is in, you know, reverse lightering. So it's inefficient for the entire system. And it's the furthest destination from China. So as I think Lars said, if all the barrels came from the U.S., that'd be ideal. It's coming quick, though, Bob. I think Hugo might disagree with you. I, I notice his uh, VLCC is loading almost every day in Corpus Christi. Yeah, Cor Corpus, I think, yeah, but uh, that's about the only place. And if we're going to do 4 million barrels a day, it's going to take more than that. Uh, no, absolutely. And and I think that let's not get carried away. Of course, we all want the perfect world, but uh, quite frankly, we already have a lot of perfect fundamentals. So if you add to that one, then maybe it's going to be a, a, a crisis booming market, but the market will be so high that uh, uh, it will hit demand for once. Now, seriously, uh, I think that um, uh, we had good exports uh, before the COVID crisis and, and uh, those good exports were anywhere between 1.2 and 1.5 million barrels. Today, there are uh, negligible quantities. If you eliminate uh, the Suez Max going to Canada and, and really look at the export, sort of long distance export either to Europe or uh, to China. Um, what, uh, what people uh, often don't talk about is the, the increase um, uh, exports out of Brazil. Uh, we're doing more and more of those. And, and quite frankly, that's um, uh, equal distance um, to China as if you leave uh, from the US or almost, I mean, give it a couple of days less. Um, and I think that uh, we, we believe in, and when we talk to Petros and the likes, that uh, uh, they are uh, still uh, capable of raising uh, the production. Um, we also uh, talked to a number of people uh, oil majors, Total, but also the Americans, Exxon, uh, etc. Uh, there is still uh, a number of uh, offshore projects uh, out uh, in the Atlantic. Uh, this, the, the one that I'm going to mention is in Guyana, uh, and that is uh, deemed to uh, export 1 million barrel uh, by 2023. Uh, but it's a gradual, it's a ramp up. And so in 22, they will have more exports. Uh, the field is already in operation. And then by 23, they should uh, arrive to uh, their goal of 1 million barrels. So there are a lot of uh, sort of long distance uh, uh, ramping up production that will help the market. And we are not dependent on the US. It is obvious that we prefer the US to be able to export. We prefer the US to uh, um, produce more uh, for export. Uh, but I don't believe that we are dependent on the U.S. for a recovery in the market. Great. So um, there's a, a few questions here. I'm going to try to sift through them a little bit. But one of the ones that I get a lot um, is, uh, again, sort of the crossover between products and crude. And not necessarily can one work without the other. But, uh, but conceptually, you hear about refineries closing down and wherever in, in consuming regions and new refineries opening up in places like Saudi Arabia. And 
it would seem as though a portion of the crude tanker market's being cannibalized by the product tanker market. Um, how, how big of a concern is that? Is that enough to sort of derail um, a, a crude tanker recovery in favor of a product tanker recovery or is it uh, next question, let's just move on, it's irrelevant. Maybe I'll start because I believe that we are the only one uh, pure player, sort of crude only uh, in this panel. Um, so I started my career at Euronav uh, 16 years ago, and the very first day I heard exactly the same story. And I heard it over and over and over again. It's either that or pipelines are going to replace uh, ships. I, I do believe that people are building refineries, not close to the production, but close to the consumer. Uh, and that's the primary reason why they're building refineries. So um, overall you do need to shift a lot of crude oil and it's a crude mix. So when you're building a refinery, let's say in, in, uh, in the Middle East, you can uh, normally not, uh, more often than not, you're not only refining uh, the uh, crude that you produce locally, you like to have a mix and that's what makes, you, makes the margin. It's even more true uh, for the refineries uh, out, outside the Middle East. Uh, and certainly the one in the US, the one in China, the one in India. I mean, they like to have a, a product mix because you have 56 different type of crude oil and all of them pr can provide you advantages or disadvantages according to your refinery programs and, and what products you want to produce. So I think that we shouldn't get uh, carried away. And it is true that there is a, a somewhat of a correlation, but the correlation is more of a ceiling. When uh, the crude market is not doing well, I've never seen the product market doing well for a long period of time. Right. Uh, okay, good. Fair enough. We'll, we'll move on. So the other question that I get oftentimes is uh, people saying, you know, all, all I hear about is how bad the tanker market is, but nobody seems to be scrapping until lately with that caveat. Uh, and this question came in from the line. Uh, what has been holding people back from getting rid of ships? And I think it at least in part goes back to the earlier conversation, but, uh, and, and when, when should we start to see, you know, uh, some, some removals in earnest? Well, it's, it's, uh, if I can just start there, it's, um, because I have this question many times today as well, and it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever that we're not, uh, scrapping. So it means that, that you know that there is something funny going on out there, and I don't believe it's owners' expectation of a raging bull market because owners normally don't have that kind of patience, and I don't prepare to put uh, a twenty-year-old vessel through class paying uh, three, three, three to four million dollars and all that stuff. You know, I, I think it's a combination of number one is obviously. Uh, the, the possibilities of, of making uh, large sums of, mo of money uh, transporting sanction crew. Secondly, we have had COVID in kind of the, the key recycling countries and the recycling sites globally. So capacity has been uh, an issue and efficiency has been an issue for them. And thirdly, during the uh, pandemic, uh, a lot of uh, ships were getting extensions uh, in order to trade. Uh, basically because yard capacity wasn't there to do the dry docking. I don't think that's much an effect any longer because they were not really given for that long duration. But there, there are a few kind of factors that come together. Which one is the strongest, I believe, is, is the alternative use for, for the vessels. 
uh, and being that, uh, you know, we both Hugo and ourselves have looked at kind of how many vessels in, in, in the fleet uh, on the VLCC side are, uh, you know, having funny trading patterns and, uh, uh, you know, uh, don't clear uh, anybody's uh, KYC process. And, and that number is staggering. You know, you're talking uh, close to 40, maybe even 50 vessels. So, so it's, um, so I think that's the biggest factor. And I think don't overestimate the fact that uh, uh, asset prices uh, values have been uh, uh, rising over the last, you know, since the, uh, the summer uh, when the market, the freight market did not uh, justify uh, such, uh, uh, you know, such an uptick. And I think owners, uh, yes, they didn't expect the freight market to, to, to justify them keeping the vessels, but they were seeing this trend of asset prices at least stabilizing and, uh, and, uh, and uh, going up you know, 5%, 10%. And they were kind of hoping that uh, they, can get, they can achieve a much higher price than, uh, than scrapping the vessels at uh, whatever $400 uh, that was the, uh, the lightweight at that point. Uh, today, uh, we have seen, uh, uh, e even though we have seen uh, uh, asset prices uh, firming even more than the summer, and we're looking today at about 15% uh, to, to, to what we had you know, uh, during the summer period a few months ago, uh, at $600 uh, per lightweight, I think it's enticing. Uh, it, you, <laughs> one, you know, an owner with, uh, with uh, an, you know, a, a, an old vessel, you just cannot overlook a $600 per lightweight ton. Uh, it's not very often that you get these kind of levels. And, uh, and uh, with all the environmental impacts that are uh, uh, coming, you know, that, that you have to face uh, over the coming years, uh, you know, you take the money and run and, uh, and uh, call it a day. Uh, so I think this is what uh, kind of enticed owners to, uh, to, uh, to, to press the trigger and, uh, and, uh, and uh, scrap. Um, so let, let's move to, well, I, I sort of want to, I sort of want to fit this one in. This, this came from the line. Basically the question is, uh, you know, it seems all that we need to do is, uh, for a better market is just for nobody to order for a little while. Uh, and, uh, why can't, uh, tanker owners just sort of collude and decide to not place any orders for until 2026, like OPEC colludes on oil production. I would say, <laughs> be careful that you're, remember that you're public. <laughs> I'm sure you all know, with the exception of Bob, but who's, just rough thoughts on that. <laughs> who, who's this guy work for who's asking this question? <laughs> I think I think antitrust rules apply to Bob too, so. Yeah. <laughs> As he's it's, well aware. Yeah. 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 So. Now that that's, but, uh, that that that's a silly question. That's just a silly question. We we it sort of we, is. But you know, that he, said, Bob, I think uh, we've all been around long enough to know that uh, sometimes um, many owners will will telegraph what they want other people to do, right? And so if they have a they have an opportunity to sort of communicate to the market in a public forum, they will encourage uh, people to do things that maybe they're not even thinking to do themselves, right? But it's, it's especially in a, in a bad market, this comes up. I mean, people who are caught colluding or price fixing, it's always when the market's bad. Right. And when the market's good, it doesn't go there. And the defense is we're losing the money anyway, so we weren't really colluding, but that's not true. And, you know, I, I've shared this before, it's a tragedy of the commons that, you know, the marginal benefit for me putting one more sheep on the 
on the commas in the village when there were 100 sheep and 100 people is, you know, my mar marginal benefit's 100%. The problem is everyone else sees that and everyone else does it and then it all goes to hell. So, um, you know, it's just the, the nature of how business works. Everyone prices their marginal ship out and discounts what it does to the rest of the fleet because they have a disproportionately small piece of the fleet that it, that it discounts that negative effect on. So, you know, as long as there are more than, you know, three, four players, uh, it's, it's going to work that way. It's the same thing in the airline business. The airline business beat their brains out for decades and had negative equity until they had frequent flyer miles. Frequent flyer miles are the only things that had any customer loyalty. It wasn't reducing prices because the next guy would. It wasn't buying newer planes. It wasn't having more routes. It was just frequent flyer miles. So there's no stickiness. We sell a commodity. Yeah, but... But I mean, I, I'll throw in a, a counterpoint to that, Bob, since I guess you and I are going to have to settle this over a cocktail later. But but yeah, we all know that example. And, and uh, it, it is what we worry about that can all things be equal, create a tanker cycle. But there, there is a case for the larger companies. And maybe I'm talking the book of, of, of everybody on this panel pretty much. But if, if you have a certain size fleet and you're to have well-developed relationships with major customers, you know, then to be looking at some sensible new building for a certain percentage of your, your fleet renewal program, which you know, in our case was, was the dual fuel, but it, it, you know, I know everybody here has done, you know, some new buildings tied in with customers. So, you know, that is different than the craziness of a completely speculative market where mm -hmm. someone's ordering new buildings just because they hope that they'll be able to take advantage of that uh, in, in the pure spot market and nothing else. So, you know, there's kind of, New building and new building, um, you know, I, I would say. And I think it's very important since since we are the company that uh, we have publicly stated and uh, and uh, Mitch Akros has been uh, vocal uh, during his intertanko days, uh, not to order speculatively. And uh, uh, over the the last few years, uh, we have strategically uh, uh, put vessels uh, uh, on order. But it's on 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 Jeff's point. It's very important to to know that the cargo that it's supposed to go on those new buildings. Yeah, but I don't think it matters. I don't think it matters if you know the cargo. It's, 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 all, it's all moving oil. I mean, the world demands so many ton miles moved a year, right? It's so oil, I, For example, the Equinors of the world or the Chevrons will not transport, will not, uh, will not charter uh, a vessel that it's, you know, an older vessel that wanted a new building. So you had to go, we had to go out and build uh, nine Aframaxis for uh, for a stack oil at the time, uh, only because stack oil did not want to transport that oil in uh, in secondhand tonnage. Uh, recently, the same with uh, with our uh, dual fuel uh, uh, Aframaxis that we ordered. Again, uh, long term contracts uh, on uh, supposedly to to go on vessels that uh, the charger does not and and uh, does not want to charge to 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 put on uh, on the secondhand vessels. So. It's kind of a, I know it's kind of an oxymoron, but in the end of the day, it's very important to, to differentiate between speculative buying and, and, and the strategic contractual agreements. A speculative buying that will start encroaching on other people's cargoes and, and create downward pressure. Whereas we feel, and we have seen it, that, that building against long-term contracts, not just for a year or two, but uh, uh, five to seven, potentially to ten years, uh, does not uh, uh, does not impact the uh, uh, you know the equation. It's uh, just the nature of the beast. Uh, that oil would not go anywhere else other than new buildings. Harry, so I'm I'm gonna have to. Sorry, yeah. go ahead, Lars. 
No, I, I just uh, want to kind of circle back to the collusion uh, point. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I don't think uh, we as ship owners need to collude on anything uh, because uh, I, I looked up this today and by 2025, just for the Vilsa Sea Fleet, you know, and mind you, the order book is 80 vessels or thereabout. Uh, by 2025, 183 Vilsa Seas will have passed 20 years. And, and we all know how easy or difficult it is to trade a 20-year-plus uh, tanker, and particularly uh, with the regulations coming in on energy efficiency, uh, carbon exposure, and so forth. So, so I don't think we need to collude anything, because uh, to be quite honest, I think we'll struggle to actually find yard space to order the tonnage that we might uh, need uh, over the next few years. Yeah, I think you were against my point, right? <laughs> Yeah. Sorry. Or were you against uh, my? No, no. In, in fact, in fact, I was <laughs> I was going to say exactly the same. I was oh, going to okay. say <laughs> whether whether I agree with you or with Bob doesn't matter, because uh, when I looked at exactly the same picture as Lars uh, pointed out, and he made the, the two points that are the most important points to me for the coming years is one, the order book today is very thin. Secondly, the order book tomorrow cannot grow crazy as, uh, as, as we were talking about simply because it's full of other type of orders. I mean, containers, the LNG, dry bulkers, and it, it is a fact and you cannot just create more space. You can be a little bit more efficient. I'm sure that uh, if you really scratch uh, yeah. or if you really push the yards, you're going to find some birth in 24, but the vast majority will be 25 yeah. and beyond. And we are still waiting for a, a wave of orders coming from the LNG and a third wave of orders coming from the container uh, world. So I think that we are, our market is protected just by the other markets, the other shipping markets. This is an extremely important point that both you and, uh, and, uh, and uh, Lars mentioned. And, and I think investors or whoever listens uh, and follows the tanker panel needs to understand and, uh, and uh, 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 this needs to be ingrained in their uh, mind uh, when they look into the tanker sector. The capacity, the supply is set. Uh, today, uh, we are, you know, even if we overorder today, you will not get your vessels before, you know, absolute earliest uh, end of 23, if you are lucky. Uh, otherwise, you're looking into in, in 24. So uh, all of us, uh, we could be faced in a negative uh, growth environment for at, at least the larger vessels, the VLs, the Swiss Maxis, and possibly the Afro Maxis, with 30%, close to 30% of the fleet over 15 years of age, in, uh, in a historical low order book, over that two, three year period, uh, we, could, uh, we could be faced in a situation where there will not be enough vessels to carry the, 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 the increased oil demand that, uh, that, that we're seeing, that the majority of that will, uh, will need to be carried by vessels. So this is very important. Uh, the runway that we have of two, three year runway should not be underestimated. Yeah, like Hugo said, since the day I started in shipping, I've heard there's no more yard space. But this time I, I do believe it because yeah. I see what's happening on the container side. I see that uh, the yards are changing berths from tankers to containers. I see the pricing even in China, you know, for uh, Suez are over 70 and V's are 110. So the, the pricing is, is squeezing us out because we certainly can't afford that now. Um, and the delivery isn't for three years. So that I think that is the, and generally I also feel if you're looking at the order book, then you're really desperate. But I think in this, right, I mean, the order book is far out. We always like to look at that as a, as a positive sign. But I think in this case, for the dynamics we have with um, what's going to happen over the next year, the order book is only going to uh, continue the party going. 
so that we might, might, might and, and also if i can add to that finance is not readily available uh, for everyone to go out and speculatively order uh, any tanker uh, just a handful of companies uh, i guess all of us in, in this panel fingers crossed uh, do have the access to capital but for you know every tom dick and harry to go out and order speculatively to play the market i don't think that uh, they can do that uh, uh, and, and anymore that was a case back in the you know in the heydays of 2004 5 6 but uh, i think that uh, uh, you know the party is over on that and Providenquid isn't there to back up the uh, the debt, so that's gone. It was a combination, right? Well, that question got a lot more play than I thought it would. Um, and we are almost out of time, and I have more, but I've already <laughs> been given the uh, the nod here. So I'll, I'll finish with the one that I almost always ask, have asked for, gosh, I don't know, however, 15 years, however long I've been doing this, um, these panels. Uh, um, you, somebody gives you hundred million dollars and says, go, you know, invest in a tanker or a tanker equity, um, or just hold the cash and wait until you think it's a good time. What do you do with hundred million dollars today? And we'll just go around the horn really quick because we know we're out of time. So maybe Jeff. Yeah. Well, the question I want to answer is maybe I'll shoehorn into that is I think that in, in the next two years, that we're going to have an old-fashioned rally that you could make money with that hundred million dollars and anywhere you'd invest it. But if you want that that money to be turned to five hundred million dollars in the long run, I, I put it with a tanker owner, which I, I think would be any of the ones on this panel that is large enough to be close to the customers and evolving to the energy transition and beyond. So, um, short term, anywhere you want. Long term, companies like those they're sitting here today. I would avoid probably investing in a real asset today uh, with uh, uh, possibly uh, semi-inflated prices. Uh, but uh, uh, as Jeff said, any of the companies, uh, uh, except Bob's, unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> Are you going to invest in Bob? <laughs> Let you invest, Harry. You can give us a few bucks. You can invest in, uh, in, in Bob, but in a different kind of manner. Uh, uh, you can buy you know, the majority or, or all of us are trading at huge discounts to, uh, to, to NAV. Hopefully, the market, you know, our valuations will recalibrate back to the norm. And uh, uh, through that, uh, I think pe people can make, you know, a decent amount of money. Okay, it looks uh, like Nicholas is there. Just one word answers for the last yeah, three. Okay, well, I suppose that I will uh, I will put it in, uh, in Euro now because I would follow the move of uh, uh, John Fredrickson. <laughs> <laughs> I, I buy 10 to 15 year old, uh, 10 to 15 year old Suez and Vs. I thought I, I thought you were going to say you were going to buy ten. <laughs> <laughs> ten no, no, twenty. No, no. We need to bring it back. Uh, you know, hundred million dollars will 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 take you take your you know you just go to the bank and lend another two hundred million and then you buy some uh, some assets. So it's um, <laughs> or shares. I think shares are better than uh, than assets. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. That's what that's what we are here to sell. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I have all of you in my PA. Well, thank you to everybody. I think we have come now to the end of this uh, very spirited uh, and insightful uh, discussion. So, really, thank Thanks you, so um, thank you to all. Thank you, Ben, and to each one of you. Great panel. Thank you. Thanks, very much. Thank you very much. We're all waiting for the recovery to uh, knock on our door. That's right. Last last Zoom panel right here. That's <laughs> it. Fingers crossed. Jeff, see you later. Hope to see you too, Ben. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, see everyone. You. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.